Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 236. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestricelli. Jay, welcome back. Thank you. And August is behind us. It's done. You know, August is a weird month, Derek, sometimes, right? You can get the, the you know, very sleepy August. or you, we've. I think we've had our face ripped off once or twice in an August, if you may recall. But it is now behind us. Yay for the good news is uh, uh, yay for everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the good, the good, the not so good news. I was being facetious. Is we're going into September, which is historically the worst month of the year on an average basis, right? If you look at the average returns for each month, SEP is always the worst one. So I'm sure we're going to see and hear a lot about how September's you know historically the weakest month for the markets. Yeah, so you got that, that to look for. That always comes out, and then. I mean, look, August was minus 1.78. Uh, people it wasn't were recording. Disastrous. No, I mean, it was down. It was down more and then it, it rallied back up. But it was. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and the only reason I know that is uh, if you go to ZegaFinancial.com in the news, they'll, uh, we're recording this on a Friday, September 1st. I just did a, an article about our uh, hypo strategy and the trade that we had in, in August. So I had to pull that number and I'm like, okay. But I want to talk first about this. Uh, Jeff Weiniger on Twitter had posted a screenshot of, it's basically Wells Fargo Chase, and it's the interest rate, the APR you could get. So this must be, it says offers from banks you may use. And this must be from bank rate. So Wells Fargo will give you 0.15%, Chase 0.01%, and Bank of America 0.01% APR on your savings. By the way, Jay, uh, I will tell you, you don't get that, let's say with Chase or Wells Fargo, unless you have $25. So if you want the 0.01%, Jay, you need $25 in that account. Like, I mean, I have a Chase account. I'm like, I, I, I'm slapping myself. Like, why am I making nothing on my Chase account? Like, at some point, this has to this has to transition, right? We've had interest rates above zero for well over a year at this point, right? Year and a half, even even above like two, right? Like, why am I still leaving my cash over at Chase and Wells Fargo? Can you just somebody? I should fire myself. Can I fire myself? Maybe so. Maybe so. I need an advisor. Well, you looking for clients, Eric. <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. I would say though. It's- is this the case? Like, why is this the case? It's not supposed to work this way, right? I mean, I remember, okay, there's two things. Number one is I remember in the, in the mid-90s, most brokerage accounts would not sweep to the bank side. They would sweep into a money market fund. So, you know, back then when rates were 5%, you were getting roughly that. And I remember bank rates were, I mean, this is savings. This isn't checking either. So... <laughs> That's even worse. I didn't pick that up. Savings. Great savings rate, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. I Thanks think you're right, though. Dark. At some point, now there there is, what do they call that? The uh, the barriers to, to switch. So if you have to switch, I mean, that's paperwork. And I think a lot of people these days have direct deposit or they have, you know, your payments set up. But I don't know. I think a lot of people are going to wake up to this if they haven't already and say, why don't I just it's go It's not like it's hard else. to move money between accounts anymore. Right. No. Like with things like, you know, Zelle and Venmo and the ACHs, it's like you could move money in two days if you had to. 
right? I know. So it almost seems ridiculous. I, you know, I've always been a proponent to leave a couple months of your expected bills in your checking account, right? You should have two or three months of, you know, your cash out in your account and the rest you should invest. But like, really, like, I, I feel like really embarrassed that I have money sitting there at Chase at a 0.01. Yeah, maybe you should book an appointment with me. We'll go through that. Maybe the other appointment that uh, we see on the verge of happening is, uh, I, actually, that's a horrible transition. I'm just going to avoid it. I'm just going to drop it. Jay, Econ PI, we watch that from time to time, econpi.com. <laughs> You like my little transition yeah. there? This that is was terrible. Yeah, it was awful. If we actually edited the show, we'd edit that. We don't do that. So Econ PI, what it does is is uh I'll put a link in the show notes. It puts things into a quadrant and things are either in expansion, recovery, contraction, decline. So you think about that wheel or the the normal process. And they have the median of coordinates. Those have moved to the decline quad. They've been there for for several weeks. Uh, Jay, uh, the audience can't see this, but I have last Friday, the graph, and then I have today. And, you know, stuff moves in and out. But I will say over the past month or so, more things have been the in the contraction quad. It doesn't mean a recession's imminent, but is this anything, Jay? Okay, so uh, there's a lot, there are a lot more data points in the declining quad, and they have moved into the contraction quad. Right. So that nothing's really the ones that were in the expansion and the recovery are still there. The middle point hasn't moved very much, but you're right. So, um, you know, do we think that maybe, uh, you know, the economy is still got some slowing down to go because of higher rates and it's just taking longer for the ripple effect to occur? Maybe, maybe I don't. I'm still in the camp of. I'm not sure why we think we're going to have a recession at this point. So I don't know if the contraction quad equals recession. I think it does. But I would say, you know, yes, while things are moving in there, I'm still not uh, convinced that that is an inevitability. Has sentiment switched, Jay? Where, you know, before it was like, what, 98% of people, I, I'm making that number up, but it felt like it if you watch CNBC said a recession was imminent. You know, they said at the end of 22, then they said early 23, then it was pushed to late. Now it's 24. Like, I feel like the recession will come when everyone says it's not coming. Yeah. Well, of course, of course. Right. And of course, that's why it didn't come when everybody said it would come. We've talked about this before, right? Mm -hmm. 27 out of 28 economists surveyed at the beginning of the year said there was going to be a recession in their documentation or their projections. So yeah. So you're right. That's always the way that it goes. And look, we will eventually have a recession. Like nobody's saying we're never going to have a recession again, right? But look, we're we're in August through August, September. I just was happy to be in September. We're in September now, and it still doesn't, you know, appear like it's rearing its head. Like I don't, you know, at some point we will, of course, we always do. It's it's natural, it's healthy, right? But it doesn't feel like it's around the corner, Derek. And you may be right. As soon as 27 out of 28 don't think there is a recession. That's probably when it happens. When when you get the all clear sign. I, was, I wasn't sure where you're going to go with the sentiment um, conversation because that's a longer sentiment trend that you're talking about here, that there's a change now that, you know, maybe 50-50 that I see on interviews on Bloomberg or CNBC uh, are mentioning recession. Um, 
so I guess that longer term uh, sentiment is 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 there that it's changing, meaning sentiment of less chance of recession. But I thought you were going to go down the path of you know like that the AI wave is kind of uh, uh, d- d- you know just uh, diffusing a little bit. Right. A quarter ago, everything was AI. Right. NVIDIA saved the markets in July and, uh, you know, in their or June, whenever their earnings were. And then their earnings this month, while they still had incredible numbers and they still beat the whisper number, it still didn't cause that broad, you know, lift in the tech sector. Right. I mean, it was it was certainly well received in the stock and it hit a new high. But um, it wasn't like the, oh, if AI is even in your name, you're all of a sudden going to go up 20%. That seems to have uh, faded a little bit because I really do think NVIDIA changed, uh, you know, three months ago, changed the dynamic of what was going on in the equity markets, certainly in the tech markets. But that might have fizzled a little bit. So I would, I was actually, I thought you were going to say, has sentiment cooled a little from how hot it was in July, June and July? I would say, yes, it has from there but definitely still better than January. I agree. So I think we should talk about the employment numbers that came out. Uh, You know, later on, we're going to talk about options synthetics and we're going to talk about volatility. So you and I always talk about volatility. First, though, (laughs) Most of the no, I think I think these days a lot of the audience is like no, no, talk about options synthetics now. So no, no, I want to no. talk. We think it's amazing. I just I joke because like I I would talk all day about synthetics and volatility. But yes, you know, well, yes. All right, let me get to the employment picture. You a bunch of us uh, on the investment committee and trading, we were sort of messaging this morning when the numbers came out. And immediately when I saw, you know, the, and CNBC, I think, mentioned unemployment ticked up. So there, there's a couple maybe anomalies. Anomalies? Yeah, anomalies, maybe not. But uh, let me just throw some numbers out at you. Uh, about 37% or 37,000 trucking jobs were lost. You might remember yellow trucking. I think they went out of business. Uh, yeah, most, they were yellow with the orange logo. Yes, yellow with the orange logo. Yeah, that must have been a marketing meeting to be at. So, and then <laughs> <laughs> about seventeen thousand motion picture jobs. And then I have a question mark here because I think I saw um, I went to the state of Hawaii database, and you know uh, everything that's gone there with the, with the the fires in Maui and Lahaina which has been just yeah, awful, awful, awful stuff. Awful. And, but I, I did read that something like 8,000 unemployment claims were filed, which unfortunately makes sense. So I bring this up because the trucking was sort of a business closing and the BLS even mentioned that. Uh, it's, a, it's sort of a one-time business close. And then the strike in Hollywood and then as long as things go on, you're like, all right, I have these people on staff. So... I don't know, you know, so unemployment, I'm going to take you through this and then let's get into the discussion. Um, 3.8% is the unemployment rate. Last month it was 3.5%. So it ticked up 0.3. It feels like a pretty big move, right? I mean, it's been kind of stuck in that 3.4 for a while, right? So it felt like that number felt like a big move to me. How'd you feel when you saw it? 
Well, I know too much. How's that? I know. <laughs> ah, you are correct, Professor. It's always your problem. No, it is, no, because it, it goes into how the numbers are, are calculated. And one of the things we notice is the labor force participation rate. So, all right, let me, let me just, we have the population, civilian, non-institutional population. That means people who are of working age, I think that's 16 and over, and who are not in institutionalized, I, I think mainly they mean in, in prison. The civilian, civilian labor force then is everyone who is working or looking for a job. It doesn't mean you have to be employed. And so basically what we do is you take the, the civilian labor force divided by the civilian non-institutional population and you get the labor force participation rate. Uh, most recently it was 62.8. Okay. So what's interesting is if I look at the number of people employed, 222,000 people more were employed in August than were in July. And you're like, how the heck did the unemployment rate go from 3.5 to 3.8? Okay. So what happens? Well, more people came into the civilian labor force. And of those people, there were 514,000 that were unemployed. 200, uh, you know, I said 222,000 that were employed. So what you have here is the labor force grew, and it's just math. You take the number of unemployed persons which did go up and you divide that. Now, let me just simplify this for a second. Let's say you get a guy who you know and he gets a call. This is the household survey. So these are, these are not businesses being called. That's the establishment. This is the household. Gets a call at his home and they say, hey, are you working? No. Are you looking for a job? No. Okay. That person is not in the labor force. They're not considered unemployed. They're part of different metrics uh, that are also published. Same guy gets the call a month later. Are you unemployed? Yeah, I still am. Are you looking for work? Oh, yeah, I am. That person is now unemployed and in the labor force. All right, Jay. That's, that's a little econ 101 there of how this stuff works. No, that's good because, right, it's the numbers that are moving around. So even though there were more people working, the, the unemployment rate clicked up because of the population change in the math, right? That's right. Population change and people who have either previously were unemployed and not looking for work and started to, because they go from not in the labor force to in the labor force. Um, and it also, and you think about it, how does the population change? Okay. People get older people, younger people change into the, you know, the working age. Uh, you could have people immigrating to the country, people leaving the country. So there's any number of things that are in there. But yeah, Jay, I think when I look at this and those numbers I gave you, you know, the one-time trucking thing, and by the way, it's, it's one time because you, you hopefully assume those folks find other employment. You have the Hollywood thing, you have the, the, the horrible thing in, in Maui. So I don't know. I think this is, could be a little bit of an anomaly, but let's watch it. But certainly the labor force participation rate being the highest since 2002, that's 25 to 54, the prime sort of labor years. That's pretty significant, Jay. Let me step back. I want your thoughts here. Yeah, let's think about what, what, what does that really mean, though, right? So the labor, for, so more people 25 to 54 are at working 
right? Is that the participation? Not that they're in the labor force, obviously in the labor force because of their age, but now more are working. Does this mean, you know, less people are sitting around waiting for their ideal job, right? Is that how we interpret this? I think it's both, Jay. It's, it's they're either working or they've decided to look for work actively. Ah, that's participation is actively yep. looking. Got yep. it. Got it. Got it. Hey, um, what is the uh, the legal working age? Do you know? Like, what's the cutoff? 16, 18, 15? I believe it's 16. It yeah. I believe 16. it's 16. Could, mm-hmm. So could it be that just a bunch of people had birthdays in August? I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm uh, We're going to have to run a regression on that. I, by the way, I what will tell you, more? speaking of younger yeah. workers, what, what do younger workers get? They get a summer job. Now, these are seasonally adjusted numbers, so that's sort of baked in there. But it is interesting, 19,000 temporary help workers uh, that came off the books, so less temporary work. But I don't know, Jay. I mean, do you think this has any implication? I, I think the bigger picture here, too, is like the market actually liked this. Isn't that crazy? They're like, oh, unemployment ticked up. Awesome. Interest rate expectations go down. Yeah, maybe. So then it all leads to interest rates, right? Maybe the Fed can stop trying to, maybe the Fed's done enough, right? That's the way uh, I always interpret it whenever bad news is good news. There was another data point that was pretty, I think was pretty well received in all of this. And that was actually hourly earnings. Hourly earnings were expected to go up 0.3%. They only went up 0.2. Previous month, they went up 0.4. So Hourly earnings, uh, kind of a quasi, you know, inflation data point, not quasi, I mean, it really is an inflation data point. So that looks to be less hot than expected and than the uh, the previous month as well, right? I think the market likes that data point more than any of this, but, you know, up for up for debate on what moves the market up and down right when those numbers come out. Jay, don't you think that, that Jay Powell and, and his compatriots on the uh, on the Federal Reserve Board, a wage spiral, meaning a you know spiraling up of wages, that sort of is what keeps them up at night, right? I mean, that's they worry about that. Yeah, because that doesn't get unwound, right? Like you know, food prices, gas prices, you know, that stuff changes, right? Uh, interest rates on you know the the cost of a mortgage, that that stuff could change, but wages, like. That's pretty sticky. Like, you know, most people don't have their pay changed month by month or year by year. And typically, you know, maybe it doesn't go up as much, but it usually goes up. And when people switch jobs, we already know this from a different podcast. We, I can't remember how long ago we covered this one, that when people switch jobs, it's uh, there's usually a pay increase associated with it. Right. So as we were watching wages go up, it was the job switchers had a bigger you know, increase. And so, you know, that's why I think that to me is the stickiest of inflation data points and absolutely is the thing that keeps the Fed governors awake at night. All right, Jay, this is one of those while you were sleeping moments for crude oil. Uh, Oil futures, uh, they broke out and you and I are both technical uh, or technicians at heart. Little bit of a cup with a handle pattern. Oil today did a break 87 at the close. I'd have to look, but this is the highest level since I think November of 22. We're not necessarily talking about inflation today, but oil is one of the components of the CPI, not the core because they remove food and energy. Uh, is this breaking out when no one was looking? Like, this is a it's kind of interesting. 
Yeah, and it kind of snuck up on us, right? So mm-hmm. just as recently as, uh, you know, a week ago, this was, you know, not even kind of sniffing a breakout. And then it's been on an interesting run. I don't know if it, some of it had to do with the hurricane, and I know you'll touch on inventories in a second. But if, right, a cup, uh, cup and handle is a bullish pattern where there is like a long, you know, there's a top and then kind of a, a, sw- a big kind of valley curve and it gets back up to the previous high and then a little dip and then a recovery. And then that typically then could turn into a much more bullish move after that once it breaks above the rim of the cup. And so, you know, if you could think about that, that one's a fun one to, to look up on uh, Investopedia. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if oil goes, it definitely could be, you know, it, it could be on the, the, you know, the top line. It's not a core piece, but oil has a ripple effect, of course, across everything when it comes to inflation. Yeah. So might be, might be a very interesting little breakout here. Nobody's really talking about it yet. No. Well, that's, that's the type of analysis you get here on the program, Jay, as always. First to bring you the container shipping uh, situation. And, uh, you know, we, you, neither of us are experts, obviously, in the, in the oil market. And I'll, I'll remind the audience, you know, anything we talk about here, I mean, really, our core philosophy is to buy but be hedged. And so, uh, yeah, don't take anything we say for trading ideas. Jay, you did tease the inventory count. It's no secret that the government has been draining, let's say, the strategic uh, petroleum reserve, the SPR. And if you look at a chart of inventories, which includes the SPR, I think we made a new low recently. I don't know what what the as of date. I got this from J.P. Morgan's Guide to the Markets. What is this? Million barrels. Uh, so, yeah. What do we go from? Thirteen billion to eight hundred. Just under eight hundred billion. That's kind of significant. And I, there's two things to yeah, look 30, at this. Yeah. I mean. The, the SPR is can compete with markets, but normally the SPR is not really doing anything. It's just storing oil. So it's, it's sort of like maybe the market is looking at this and saying they've dumped all the oil they can. They don't think they're going to dump anymore. Or, and it could be demand is, is starting to, to come up. I don't know, Jay. We'll, we'll know when we know on this, right? Yeah, I mean, this is another thing that uh, the, the the concept is that you release uh, you release oil right from the strategic reserve, and then you fill it back up, which means you got to go back into the market and buy it, right? So when you release, you should increase supply, pushing prices down, and vice versa. Um, doesn't look like you know it's been uh, it's it's been refilled, right? So you just going back. Um, you know, this was approved to have uh, to draw down the SPR because of uh, the, the the Russian war in the Ukraine and the pressure that it put on oil. So, you know, that is one of those things that it looks like the market has kind of evened itself out a little bit from that. What are we, a year and a half into that conflict? And uh, oil shot up going into that conflict and then it dropped. But you're right. It's it's kind of on the, the way up again here. So, um yeah, like to, to to backfill that is going to be again a constraint on uh, supply if they were going to kind of refill it. Uh, there are a lot smarter people than us about the strategic petroleum reserve, right? So let's uh, we could leave it to them. But it's an interesting data point. 
It will help earnings. Let's transition to earnings. And we basically have all of Q2 wrapped up, except I think three companies. I don't know who they are that haven't reported, but every, everyone majors reported. And, you know, I mean, coming into Q2, I think the street estimate, Jay, wasn't it minus 9% year over year? I think it was that high, right? Oh, yeah. No, no. Yeah, it was, it was expected to be a pretty d- abysmal quarter. What did we wind right? up at? Yeah. Uh, we came in at a minus 2.9 for the not, quarter. Not too bad. Not too bad. Not, so Not nearly as bad as uh, previously rumored. Right. And I think last Still quarter, too. Line, but, Jay, I mean, last quarter, too, you talked about this. Uh, 0.1% for Q1. Wasn't that supposed to be minus 5? So yeah, they haven't was, been as was, bad. Um, but the outlook, Jay, is looking good. Take us through the outlook going forward and maybe talk a little bit about how those change over time. Yeah, so so Q3 is projected to be a positive 1.8%, which would be the most going all the way back to, uh, until Q3 of 2022. Uh, so that's nice to see that that would be uh, – um, you know, we'd be on the on the rise again. But Q4 is where it gets, you know, really interesting. It's a, a projected positive 10.6%. So, I mean, that's a, a real change, right, coming off the, the bottom there. Maybe as a reminder, so the last three quarters, Q4 of 2022 is a minus 3.2. Q1 of 2023 was flat. It was a plus 0.1. And then we just put in a minus 2.9. 2.9. Now we're projected for a 1.8. However, that plus 1.8 has been coming down over time, right? So if you look uh, at the beginning of the year, the Q3 projection that I just said that we're projected to be a plus 1.8 was plus 5.5. And even before that, the quarter before that in October, when the market was really having some trouble, it was projected at a plus 9.2. So, and it has been kind of ticking down little by little. Right. So, like I said, beginning of the year, we were projected to be 5.5. In April, we were projected to be a 2.8. And in July, we were projected to actually be a 1.3. So it's it's had a slight tick up, but it looks like it's kind of leveling out here, you know, from April, July. And now we've been hovering around the two, you know, the two range. Uh, I guess we'll start to see. I mean, we're in Q3, Derek, right? Like we're pretty, we're almost. We're two thirds of the way done with Q3. We'll obviously get the data, you know, once we're done with it. But uh, you know, this has been an interesting trend here that has been coming down. I will say, if you go farther, farther out, like through 2024, which we just talked about, folks have been projecting a recession in 2024. The exact opposite in earnings seems to be the case. I just mentioned 10 percent for Q4 of 23, but uh, Q1 of 24. Plus nine. Q two of twenty-four plus twelve. Q three of twenty-four plus thirteen. Q four of twenty-four plus thirteen. So there are a lot of uh, look. I don't know if that's the default. Twelve and thirteen is the default for the growth rate. But you know, there certainly down the road looks to be a lot of positive uh, earnings improvement. I think over time we tend to see analysts start high and then the anal- uh, the analyst expectations come back in, meaning they they go down. It was a little bit unusual when we saw after, you know, 2020, when estimates were really low and they had to start raising them. But yeah, we'll see. And I mean, the market was, 
think about this. We really didn't get a negative quarter uh, year over year on a quarterly basis until this year. But yet the market sort of anticipated that, well, I guess Q, Q4 of 22. But the market was down from January until, what was that, September, October, and then has rallied. So it tends to be forward looking. Volatility, though, Jay, is is sort of another thing that's maybe forward looking. Maybe it's just reactionary. But I'm sure, as uh, I, I was going to joke around and say, have you, did you see what happened in volatility today? Of course you do. Is this the lowest we've been in some time, right? I mean, volatility has been getting crushed last, last week or so. Yeah. I mean, we, we always measure volatility as uh, with the VIX, right? That's kind of one of the main metrics that we look at. And we are right near that bottom uh, that we've seen for this year. So you are right, Derek. Today was one of the lowest closes of the year. There was one other close that was a little lower. Looks like back on June 22nd, the uh, the VIX closed at, let me get this number here, 12.91. Today, we closed at 13.09. So fairly close. But it has been like a very steep March lower, right? You know, when you look at the last one, two, three, four, five, six, seven days coming off a of 17, it's been straight down to this 13 level. So vol is definitely coming out of the market. Um, so what does vol mean, right? I know we've, we've gone over this and I always feel like I'm preaching a little bit. This number, the implied volatility of the options market uh, is driven by what people are paying for calls and puts, meaning the premium, the extra that they're paying or how much more they're willing to pay for options. Uh, a lot of people call this the fear index. We do not. It's more of a speculator index. Right, because you can have a VIX pop higher because of call premiums popping, not just put premiums popping. So, uh, but the underlying idea is that when the market's about to get uh, pretty, you know, volatile in a day-to-day move, uh, option uh, investors and speculators are willing to pay more because they think the payout will be greater and greater moves are coming. So again, it's why we call it the speculator. Does speculator doesn't always mean up, right? It just means speculative move either way, uh, and that has really been sucked out of uh, out of the market here. I'll also throw in uh, before you comment um, that you know the volatility of the VIX itself, I meaning how much people are willing to pay for VIX options, is also on the lower end. It dropped below eighty this week, finished out at eighty-two. That's also a sign that says even the volatility betters that vet bet sorry, that bet volatility directly aren't willing to pay up for much. So that tells us that the drop in volatility may be here to stay for a little while if you're to read the tea leaves like that. So sorry, Derek, went off on volatility a little bit, but you know, it's one of our favorite topics. It is, absolutely. I'll just say, I think you pretty well covered it. Volatility in my experience, and I, and I think in yours as well, it's sort of takes the, I was going to say the elevator up and the stairs down. I don't know what I'm talking about, but it, it tends to rise very quickly, but it doesn't come down. I mean, we saw that in, in 2008, 2009, you had this elevated volatility regime for a while. And we still, even as markets were making new all-time highs, volatility was still pretty high considering we were at an all-time high, um, you know, just in, uh, what was that? the end of 21. And so this may be the, 
sort of this long-term process of finally getting back to a little more equilibrium. It also could be maybe there's not as much fear of a recession and or of the Fed just really doing a Volcker-type rate raise. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's just interesting, and, it, and it's really come out recently. And it's no coincidence, I think, that it came out after earnings. Everyone was worried about earnings. Earnings turned out okay, and profit margins turned out okay. I don't know what's going to happen next week or, or two months from now. But yeah, Jay. All right. Yeah, so let, I mean, listen, I, I will make one last comment. Like yeah, you and I it. have studied volatility for a long, long time. There is a statistical relevance when the VIX closes below 13. If you look at the history of the markets after that, I think, you know, Derek, if people wanted to learn more about that, could they, could they you know, contact you? How would they get in touch with you? Yeah, well, they would uh, shoot me an email at Derek.Moore at ZegaFinancial.com. That's Z as in Zebra, E as in Eddie, G as in George, A as in April. Uh, financial's up to you or anyone to spell correctly. But yeah, absolutely, Jay. That was it. That was my throw to you on that one, Derek. No, I, I like the throw. Let me, let me set up the <laughs> next segment here. Are we doing segments right. now? Maybe not. Uh, by so. the way, yeah. you and I have a hard stop. That's why normally we're sort of uh, a little looser with the uh, the schedule, but we've got a hard stop, so we got to uh, cut off the recording at some point. Jay, a lot of talk about option synthetics, and when you hear the word synthetic, uh, sometimes you think about you know artificial turf, that awful stuff in the seventies and eighties that people played at. By the way, Jay, I played on that stuff. I played baseball and I played uh, soccer on it. Uh, no picnic playing soccer on that, you know, the old AstroTurf. Uh, baseball was, yeah, I mean, it, just really bad. But when you think about synthetic, it's synthetically does, it, it matches something else. And so when we think about if you were to buy a stock, say $100 stock, uh, the worst that can happen is the stock goes down to zero. Assuming you're not on margin or anything, let's set that aside. Buy 100 shares at 100 and go to zero, you lose all your money. If you sell a put option, well, you have the risk to zero minus whatever premium you took in. And if you simultaneously buy a call and sell a put, well, you have unlimited upside and downside to zero plus or minus whatever premium it is. So when we think about being synthetically long, Jay, that there is that structure, that sell a put by a call, that you experience or take on the same risk reward profile, plus or minus. So I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like this has been more and more in the news lately. And um, people are using options a lot more now, and it's uh, the computer systems and everything like that. But Jay, kind of take us through a little bit of you know, synthetics and uh, I kind of couched it there. I didn't steal too much of your stuff, I don't think, but. No, no, look, synthetics are definitely an option tactic that we use. Uh, As you said, it mirrors a long position. Um, You normally don't earn dividends, right? Maybe the options may reflect some of the dividends, but you don't get paid dividends, right? That's one of the major differences of being long stock or being long and synthetic. Think about synthetic as just, you know, the way options can replicate stock exposure, right? But you could do it in a much more cost-efficient way. What do I mean by that? So right in in your example of a $100 stock, if you were to buy 100 shares, it's costing you $10,000, right? 100 times 100. But if you synthetically created exposure to that stock, 
if you're, let's say your call, the call was trading at seven bucks and the put was trading at, you know, five bucks, I'm deliberately making them not equal. It would only actually cost you $2 a share to get long that $100 stock. So you could only spend a $200 debit to make it feel like you spent $10,000. Now, the moves of that stock is are going to be the same, right? So a 1% move when you own, you know, $10,000 worth of a stock, but I'm going to use 2%. A 2% move when you own a $10,000 stock is $200 plus or minus. That will still happen with your synthetic. You will gain or lose the $200 each day, but it didn't cost you a lot to get into the position. And so it's a much more cash efficient position. Now, it doesn't mean uh, you get that for free and you've got all this extra money. Um, there is a requirement because the uh, the options world knows that, hey, the stock could go to zero. You have what's known as a, a usually we use right T, regulation T, option requirements, not to get into that. But you need, you know, uh, you need to have something like 25% of the strike price of cash or some sort of collateral to do that. So while it's not, you know, free money to do it, it's a more efficient way to do it. And these days with things like with vehicles like treasuries that can be used as collateral, you can use treasuries as your collateral, earn your, you know, Fed funds rate or is five, five and a quarter. You could earn that and then also have exposure to the stock. And so this is one of the tools that when rates are where they are, we like to use synthetics as a more efficient way of getting long a particular uh, holding. And uh, you could do things like sell calls as if you would like a covered call, or uh, you could create, if you wanted a little leverage without borrowing, right? You can, instead of buying one contract, you buy two contracts, doesn't cost you anything for margin, but you could kind of double your exposure. So very easy to create, uh, you know, uh, excess exposure if you want, or even in like IRAs where you can't use margin, you could do things like use synthetics. They take up less buying power. And then you could do, uh, you know, use that buying power to do other things, uh, you know, in your portfolio. So it allows you, it's just a tool to allow you to do more with, uh, with less. And, uh, you know, there are definitely some pluses and minuses when it comes to synthetics. The biggest minus is that options expire. So if you use them in a taxable account, you will have a taxable event one way or another at expiration. Right. Uh, so it's just one of those things that, uh, you, you know, use it appropriately. Uh, we, we like I said, we use these all the time, um, even for collars. We could collar up with these things right Buy a put, sell the call. And, it, you know, you've, you've done a good job of managing your uh, risk and you've done a good job of managing your cash usage. So it's a very you know, it's not popular. It's scary. We say the word synthetic and people like shy away like, oh, I don't know, that sounds complicated. But as Derek said, it's a, it's just as simple as buying a call and selling a put at the strike price, and you will get the same effect as if you were long the stock. I think uh, follow on a couple of things that you said. Uh, one is we're not advocating taking any sort of leverage. Um, so when you think about one versus another, and you didn't necessarily say that, Jay. I just like to couch it, right? I'm not. I think it's because, good you say that though. It, it has to be appropriate, right? It has, it has to, to be appropriate. Right for you. Like the way to look at this in your example or my example, it's sort of our example now, 100 shares of stock at $100, you're spending $10,000. If it has a dividend, you get a dividend. If it doesn't, well, obviously there's no dividend. But in your example, Jay, where buying a call 
selling a put and you buy one at, would you say seven, the other one at, uh, you take in five. So you're spending $200. That $200 controls, but doesn't own a hundred shares. And, but you still have all of that downside that you did, even if you had the stock. So I think it's an important point to make that uh, it would be easy for someone, you know, in, in maybe just learning about options and thinking, oh, this is great. I, I can control, you know, 100 shares of stock for 200 bucks here. Uh, and you pointed out, yeah, there'll be some requirements from the different brokerage firms. But I think the way I look at a synthetic is if I want to have the leverage or the, the exposure of 100 shares, I could do this other structure, still have the same exposure. And as you pointed out, Jay, with treasuries being, you know, five and a half now on the short end, that gets kind of interesting. You know, you mentioned collars too. And maybe we'll, I don't know, should we talk about it? Yeah, let's talk about that. So it, let's let's follow up on that a little bit. So same stock, Jay, $100 stock, XYZ. XYZ, by the way, is my favorite symbol, my fake symbol compared to ABC, uh, which is uh, my second favorite fake symbol that we use. But XYZ is, is 100 bucks. So let's say... If you wanted to limit the downside, but at the same time, you're willing to put a cap on it, to take us through a structure. Yeah, so you just said it, right? So collars are designed to limit risk, um, and you are uh, going to try to fund that protection by giving up some of the upside. So let's say uh, you know, you, you're you in a position and you don't want to lose more than 10%, which seems to be a nice round number, on a $100 stock. You would do something like buy the 90 puts. That 90 put may cost you a couple dollars. Let's just say $3, 3% around hedging typically can cost that for large caps. It could be more for more volatile, but let's just say, you know, this stock is not so volatile. You pay three bucks for that put. Well, in order to pay for that $3 so that you, you know, don't lag your stock's movement, XYZ, uh, by three dollars, you could then maybe sell an out of the money call, sell the one ten, sell ten percent up, and get three dollars for that. And that's what we call uh, a zero cost collar. And in that scenario, you've got protection, you've limited your downside risk, you've capped the upside, but you've used that cap that's selling the call for three bucks to pay for that protection. And so the protection doesn't. Uh, you know, cost you anything. It doesn't cause a drag. Yes, you may not participate in the market appreciation if it goes up more than 10%, but you've also limited your risk. And so if you're using a synthetic and then you're also collaring it up, it's a really efficient way to create a position that's both protected and, uh, you know, leaves you plenty of cash available uh, uh, to do things uh, to 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 make other investments, and so you know, if you only in that scenario you only have a ten percent risk, then you could then turn around and say, okay, yep, I didn't have to spend all of my account on this hundred dollar stock. I only had to, you know, I know my max risk is ten percent. Put that aside. I still have ninety percent of my account that I could use for something else, and you could put on multiple positions, all collared, that you've defined your risk. Now, of course, you're also creating implied leverage and notional stuff. There's more complication there, but it's just a way to protect yourself with not a lot of cost. You know, we hedging is very important for us at Zega, as Derek has mentioned multiple times. We like to say that the only thing you really can control when you invest is the risk you take. 
And by using options, you can define what that risk looks like. In that example I just gave you, 10% risk on a position if I buy a put and have it collat- or funded by selling a call. I will mention, by the way, before we get to our recommendations, it is coming up on Labor Day, three-day weekend. Well, by the time you listen to this, it'll be Sunday. But Jay, what better time to pick up a copy of uh, Buy and Hedge, your book uh, on uh, published? When was that published? Uh, it was 2011, I believe. With a reprint. Oh, yeah. You did a, yeah, you did a reprint, right? So Buy and I Hedge. did a reprint. My publisher, believe it or not, like... You know, one of the biggest publishers just decided to get out of the book business because everybody was doing it independently. It's a very interesting dynamic. I'm glad we aren't in the book printing business, Derek. Yeah. Well, as far as I know, uh, so my publisher, they, they had operations in the U.S., but they had a big operation in the, in the U.K., so Broken Pie Chart. Uh, I always like to pair Buy and Hedge with Broken Pie Chart available on Amazon as they're, well. They are so. a good fit together. Yeah. It's a nice pairing. Very nice. Pairing. If we ever write a book together, Jay, which someday may happen, we'll we'll publish that uh We'll let everybody know. All right, Jay, real quick, some uh, some recommendations. I, I think I know where you're going, and I'm going to let you do it. All right. Well, I, I mean, love to talk more about synthetics, but I, we've, we've gone on. We should talk about shorts next time, Darren. Maybe okay. that'll be an interesting Yeah. Idea. So my recommendation uh, is, uh, and I've been ha- very happy with it so far. It's been week three. If you're a Star Wars fan, I'm definitely enjoying the Ahsoka uh, uh, on Disney+. Plus. Uh, a Star Wars series. It has been actually pretty great if you're a Star Wars fan. I think they've been doing a really great job about it. Most people aren't familiar with that storyline, right? Everybody gets the uh, the movie, uh, the movie storyline, the Skywalker storyline. This is kind of independent of that. Kind of like how the Mandalorian was. It's very similar. Uh, definitely enjoying that one. That is my strong recommendation. Are you you pounding the For table? Star Wars you you pounding the table? For a Star Wars person? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. all right. I haven't seen look, it. It's no Rogue One. It's no Rogue One. Like you and I love that movie, but it's it's up there. Yeah, that's the best. And I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to even talk about the final scene. But if you haven't seen Rogue One, you can <laughs> see that. Uh, I will mention, um, got through Breaking Bad. Took me a long time, but it definitely recovered. Like the, the middle seasons, I felt like were a little slow, but the payoff at the end, I, I, I give it a... a I give it a strong recommendation. It's a strong buy on Breaking Bad. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. And I know I know Bill helped you get back on that that uh, wagon. Didn't he, he did. Yeah. No. Bill. Bill uh, is like no. You got to you got to stick with it. Friend of the program, Bill and uh, uh, and and John as well. But yeah, I mean, and then what I found too is there's a postquel, a sequel, sequel. There you go. Called El Camino that actually picks up from the last episode and it's just a movie which by the way i enjoy it's like okay i can watch this for two hours and so that's on my list i'll report back bill also mentioned uh he he wanted us to throw in kaleidoscope i think it's on netflix might be on netflix uh about bank robbery so he's giving the audience is giving recommendations now and wow that's great yeah no and then secret invasion i think it's on hulu with samuel jackson uh that's from our, our friend michael he recommended that one as well. So that's that's what people are doing these days. They're giving us recommendations to point out, Jay. Okay, great. Put there them out there. All uh, right. Well, I think we'll uh, we'll call it here. Hopefully everyone has had a good holiday weekend. Maybe next week we'll talk about reverse ratio gamma scalping or something like that. 
Uh, I'm sure everyone will be back for that. That's a good one. Let's bring I, up Gamma Scout. No, we're not talking about that. All right, Jay. <laughs> have a good one. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Derek. Take care. <laughs>